sing as one for this country we're walking on we stand together to protect this land for the future we're hand in hand welcome to another episode of the environmental as anything podcast Zali Stegall famously ousted Australia's climate denier and wrecker-in-chief, Phony Tony, from his long, safe Liberal seat of Warringah in Sydney. She did so based on her firmly held commitment to taking effective action on climate change. Since her election to the Federal Parliament, she has honoured her promises in spades. This week, she presented to the Parliament her Climate Action Bill, and she's with us now to discuss how that's going. Zali, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything again. Good morning. We appreciate all your work. You've been hard at it this week, uh, putting your, uh, relaunching your climate change bill, calling for the Morrison government to adopt sensible climate change legislation that will align national policy with state governments and the private sector's commitment to net zero by 2050. That was put to the parliament uh, only a couple of days ago. How did that go in the parliament? Uh, Look, it's been uh, a fantastic journey. I came into politics very much with a desire to put forward a sensible solution. I think like many Australians, I've had enough of the partisan wars around climate change policy. Um, And I'm just really concerned that we're not acting enough. We we need to put in place a plan. And that's echoed by all of our state governments and territory governments are committed to net zero by 2050. Our international trading partners are committed to that. And the only outlier is actually the federal government. So I think it really is time to move. And obviously the US election showed that there is going to be a very different conversation around climate policies for the next four years um, and I welcome the US rejoining the Paris Agreement. So um, I had to delay the climate change bill. It was due to be presented in March but COVID restrictions uh, meant that was difficult. So uh, it was presented to Parliament on Monday. Um, and now there's where we've requested for it to go to inquiry, because obviously that uh, enables a, a, another round of consultation with both sides of politics. So any MPs that have a concern or an issue with it have the opportunity to raise that during the inquiry, uh, suggest amendments and really engage with this process. So there's no excuse not not to engage and MPs will need to respond to their electorates about how they've engaged with that process so uh, the bill is sensible legislation it's legislation that's matching um, what was introduced in the UK in 2008 and it this is not an energy policy this is simply setting into law that we're committed to net zero by 2050 and we get there by having five-year emission reduction budgets um, and we have an independent climate change commission that reports back to the Australian public on how we're tracking and how the government's tracking and also where our risks are because I think the last summer's really showed that we are incredibly exposed to climate risks and impacts um, from extreme weather events but also employments and communities that are going to be disrupted so we need to be on the front foot. Absolutely. It seems that the, uh, this is all designed very carefully to take the heat and the partisanship out of the, uh, the process, and, uh, and that would be welcome uh, by almost all. 
there's been a lot of uh, support already, bipartisan and across uh, various different sectors of the community. Uh, I know that Helen Haynes from uh, the Independent for Indi, uh, you know, is representing a regional electorate as you're, as you're in an urban electorate. And yep. she says that the, the regional Australia is represented in this bill and it's an enormous opportunity for everyday people. It gives certainty for regional communities that they'll be placed at the heart of our emerging zero carbon economy. We are broadcasting in a regional rural uh, electorate. What is on offer? For, for us here in the regions? Yeah, look, it's really important. And for anyone listening that would like some information, uh, could I urge everyone to go to a website called climateactnow.com.au because that's where there's a lot of information and a copy of the bill. So you can get that and see that firsthand. And I should actually say... I believe you are um, airing over an electorate of page where there's about 700 and I'm going to get the exact number. We've got 739 people in that area that have uh, signed up for support. So I hope I can see that number grow. Um, this is incredibly important for regional communities. We actually know regional communities are going to be seriously impacted by climate impacts, but also by the job disruption that is coming, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Um, there is a change and a disruption coming around the world as the world shifts away from fossil fuels. So we either have the opportunity to be on the front foot and prepared, or we'll be playing catch up and communities will pay the price. So it was very important when we were drafting the bill that um, there's some guiding principles that guide the actions and the advice that Independent Climate Change Commission gives, but also uh, guides the actions the minister and the government of the day needs to take. And that means having uh, a focus on um, regional equity so that we need to make sure no one region is paying a higher price than the other. Um, we need to make sure we have those skills around the table. So the Independent Commission must have people with regional um, expertise, we must have industrial relations expertise, we need business expertise, we need food and water security, of course we need climate scientists but so, and, and, and an Indigenous voice. So we're really trying to make sure that we have that, um, the diversity of voices around the table so all views and concerns are getting represented and are part of the solution. We can't have a situation of a, a narrow hand-picked body that just looks at what the government of the day wants to look at. We need to make sure all communities are taken care of. Well, that, that sounds like a, a, really, a really comprehensive plan. Um, you know, speaking of the government of the day, uh, we have SCOMO coming out saying uh, that this, it would be deceptive to sign up to a target without telling Australians how much it would cost. Now, now that is a deceptive rhetoric in that it's, uh, the, the costs of doing nothing are enormous and the benefits of, of actually acting on climate are, are all, it's similarly enormous. Um, how, how would you, you see that, that issue? How would you put that to bed? Do you think there's any chance that that could be put to rest, that kind of rhetoric? Yeah, look, that's the argument that's been playing out for some time and I really call on the Prime Minister to stop that because that's a very divisive and that's just looking at political game scoring. But reality is there has been private um, studies done and we know Deloitte's and other organisations have costed uh, the cost of action and the cost of inaction. So the cost of inaction being, if the world does go to what's currently predicted, we are on track for three degrees of warming, um, the cost will be essentially the cost of a pandemic every year to the economy. So, you know, because it's in the trillions. So that that we know that number is horrendous. And in question time, I've actually asked the Prime Minister, has his government costed 
two degrees warming because at the time that was even the, the worst case scenario. Um, and, and he acknowledges he has not costed it. So they have not looked at the alternative. The next question is they constantly say, well, what's the cost of getting to net zero by 2050? Well, with due respect, I am asking the government to cost that because this is a policy every other country is doing it. They have access to the Department of Finance, they have the Treasury, so they need to cost net zero by 2050. If they are saying we can't afford it, then tell us what it is, tell us what that price is, and we can compare that to what we know the cost of inaction is. So, look, I'm an independent. I don't have access to all those resources, but I am quite confident that the private uh, studies that have been done by organisations like Deloitte's, I know University of Melbourne have looked at it as well, they all say the cost of acting too late or too little too late far exceeds the cost of action. Well, thank you for getting on with uh, pushing for the actions that you have. It's, uh, it's inspiring to know that we've got independent voices like yourself in the parliament, uh, you know, making a difference. What's the next step? What can people do to push this along for you? Yeah, look I, look, I really appreciate all the support and it's important for people to know that this is supported very broadly. Uh, we had from the AMA, from, uh, you know, we know now National Farmers Federation is supportive of net zero by 2050. We have the Business Council of Australia, the, uh, you know, industry manufacturer. I've had briefing, a briefing with the Minerals Council and they are working through their position but acknowledge they need to reduce emissions, um, talking to just, you know, religious groups um, and then the private sector. So this is really a broad scale whole of society uh, acknowledgement that we need this. So, but what people can do is keep up the pressure. At the end of the day, you know, we have to say to the government, we don't want the political games playing anymore. And unfortunately, the previous member for Warringah was highly responsible for weaponising the debate around climate. You know, the last time we had consensus on climate policy was actually 2007 with Kevin Rudd and Malcolm Turnbull. So I think we need to get back to a position where we all agree that a long-term sensible plan should have bipartisan support. So people can, if you go to climateactnow.com.au, um, there are some um, uh, resources there that you can download. Um, they can assist you in writing letters to your uh, MP to support that they support the bill or debate the bill at the very least, uh, support the uh, inquiry process, um, but engage with this issue. We, we can't put our head in the sand and pretend this is not happening. That is a disservice to communities, especially regional communities. That was independent member for the federal seat of Warringah and sponsor of the Climate Change Act, Zali Stegel. Mark McVeigh is a 25-year-old Brisbane man who has just achieved an extraordinary out-of-court settlement on the Supreme Court action that he took against his superannuation company, REST, to force them to account for and explain their actions on climate change. Mark, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Well, thanks, it's good to be here. You've just scored an outstanding win uh, for the climate and for the people with the funds in superannuation. Can you quickly outline what it is that you set out to do with the case that you took and what it, what's been the outcome? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the very beginning of the case was about transparency and disclosure. So what I originally asked REST was, 
what are they doing about climate change risk? Um, what was their take on climate change? And you know, what were they doing about it? So that was the very first part of the case. And that kind of led on when they couldn't answer that, they couldn't give me that information, was that perhaps they weren't doing anything about climate change. And so the question was, are they failing their fiduciary duties to their members by not taking climate change into account and taking that risk and, and making you know, adequate measures to mitigate it? So that was the start of the case. Where we ended up uh, at the end of the settlement was that they agreed to a whole bunch of measures to basically start taking climate change risk into account, scenario analysis, full disclosure of their portfolio, basically all the things that we, we asked for at the very beginning of the, the case. So as, as far as the, the results go, we, we got exactly what we were chasing. So yeah. well, that is uh, fantastically exciting. I mean, I've been to my insurance company in the past and said to them, what are you doing about climate change? And they've, they've said, no, not much. So <laughs> they didn't have any answers. So is that how it started for you? Were you just asking somebody behind the counter or what, how did you get started with this process? Yeah, so I just sent a short, quick email. That was all it took. And then basically just kept asking and it snowballed into a federal court case. So I still don't really question how that kind of happened, but uh, it did and that's where we are today. So yeah, that's sometimes all it takes is just taking that first step and, and just asking and when they say no or they don't give you what you want and you just keep asking. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, it's only been two years, hasn't it? Which is very, very quick in, in terms of court cases. It could have dragged on for a decade or more if they'd, if they'd been fighting your tooth and nail, couldn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I didn't really realise how slow it was when I started, but yeah, could easily have extended into next year quite a bit. The law is definitely slow. So REST have come around with an agreement to, uh, to settle and kudos to them for doing so, really. Were they fighting tooth and nail or did you get a sense in the end that they were relieved to be brought to the table on this and that perhaps you'd actually done them a bit of a favour? I mean, it's hard to know. In a court case, you never really talk to anyone from REST. You're always talking with lawyers. The lawyers talk on each other's behalf, so you can't really get a feel for how they as a company or as the board are feeling for something. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to say, but the settlement did come in the 11th hour and it's a good result for, for both of us. How about the, uh, the 2 million members that you, that you were representing essentially there? What, what do you think the benefits are for, for the 2 million members of REST? The measures that are in place now through the settlement is basically protecting people's money beyond 2050. But that was our expectation that there's going to be significant financial issues that climate change is going to cause over the next 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And this is going to go in some way to protect that money. So, I mean, as far as people that have the fund for the next, you know, in the long term, young people like me, this is a huge benefit. Well done. What a great win. This is the first time a major superannuation fund has agreed to settle litigation around the material financial risk of climate change, according to uh, your, your lawyer, uh, it says here. And it seems that the investment community is quickly moving to get to uh, zero emissions by 2050 uh, across the world. So, uh, uh, you've you've played a significant role in in edging this forward. How could other people get involved and do something similar? What if other people are inspired by your action? What would you suggest they do next? They could just sue their superannuation, I guess. Uh, I probably wouldn't recommend it. The best way, I think, at the moment is to just ask. If, if companies have a lot of direct people asking questions and they're vocal about it, then they'll have to start moving. The other option, I guess, is to also move your bank, move your super, move your insurance, um, or at least just know what they're doing. Be aware of, of where they stand on climate change, climate change risk, uh, risk management, that kind of thing. It, it's not too hard to have a quick search. 
I know there's a website that uh, is run by Market Forces. You can search your superannuation and it'll give you a rundown of what their stance on climate change is and, and the amount of risk mitigation they've got there. So, yeah, just being aware, asking questions. And, I mean, if you can't get anything out of them, you've got to either sue them or move, I guess. Mm, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, just being an active and engaged consumer and interested in your own financial affairs is, is, is seems to be the basic bottom line. All right, Mark. Well, thank you for being that first mover in that action and congratulations with your success. What's next for you? Thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. It, it just only start, happened on Monday and I was still expecting the trial to go ahead. So, uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what my next move is. Uh, I don't really know where to go from suing a $50 billion super company, but I guess we'll, we'll see. I'll let you know. That was Mark McVeigh. If climate change goes unchecked, then the Aussie economy will be 6% smaller and have 880,000 fewer jobs by 27. That's a $3.4 trillion lost opportunity over the next half a century. But there's a $680 billion dividend that's ours for the taking if we do rise to this challenge, along with 250,000 more jobs. So says a new report from Deloitte Access Economics called A New Choice, Australia's Climate for Growth. Deloitte has flipped the debate by modelling the impacts on Aussies of not addressing this existential threat. And doing nothing comes with a huge cost. The lead author of this report, Dr Pradeep Phillip, is the lead partner for Deloitte Access Economics. He's had a long and successful career in public policy with deep expertise in economics and proven leadership experience. Pradeep has been a senior bureaucrat working at the highest levels of public policy across three jurisdictions in Australia. And he joins us today to talk us through some of the implications of this groundbreaking report. Pradeep, thank you very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Great to be with you. Sure. Thank you. Um, look, uh, the, uh, the new report, A New Choice, uh, Australia's Climate for Growth from uh, Deloitte, is um, quite uh, startling in, uh, in, in its analysis of the, uh, the economics of climate action. Um, says the Australia First analysis comes uh, to some sobering conclusions. Could you give me uh, you know, the basic dot points on that? Sure thing. Um, look, we set out to get the economics right in the debate on climate change uh, because we realised that the economics was not right. You know, there, there's been an assumption during the debate on climate change that the economy will just keep growing beautifully year after year, completely unaffected by rising emissions. And we know that the science tells us that rising emissions causes certain changes in the environment some of which can be quite negative to the economy. So we set out to bring the economics and the financial together with the science to look at what is the baseline for the economy uh, before we start to think about uh, how we might do something about climate change. And uh, the fundamental uh, conclusion we came to was this, that climate change is not a scenario, it's the reality. And therefore, it's built in to the new baseline that we've developed. And our analysis uh, does generate some rather sobering uh, results. We find that if you leave climate change unchecked, then 
by 2050, you know, if we think COVID has been bad this year, we will be experiencing the same economic impact of COVID every year getting bigger. Getting bigger such that by 2070, in just 50 years from now, we will have a $3.4 trillion hit to the economy, costing us some 880,000 jobs. So this is uh, the rather sobering conclusion that we got to. But we didn't set out to do this uh, for uh, to come up with some doomsday uh, conclusions. In fact, we wanted the opposite. Uh, and that's why our report goes to the more positive side, which is the benefits and the dividends to Australia of acting. Well, that's, uh, yeah, they are sobering uh, figures. Uh, you know, you, you talk about uh, uh, 30% of employed in, in Australia and 30% of national income, uh, uh, you know, exposed to the economic disruption, um, you know, uh, economic cost of doing nothing is 6% smaller and 3.4 trillion loss, as you mentioned. Um, but the, uh, you know, this new growth economy, what's, what's the, the delivering net zero by 2050? How, how is that going to benefit us? Sean, the ultimate objective is to keep the temperature from rising too much mm. because we know that has consequences. You know, if as temperature rises, we get a higher incidence of heat stress, and when you get more heat stress, then labour productivity drops away. Um, we know as emissions rise, we get poorer air quality, and that affects people's health. And again, that affects labour productivity in a negative way. We know that uh, the increased intensity of weather patterns and the variation of weather patterns leads to more cyclones and flooding and bushfires, things we have unfortunately become all too used to. These things affect our buildings, our roads, our bridges, our capital infrastructure. And in Australia, roughly 18 to $20 billion worth of economic cost is realised because of these natural disasters every year. And we think they'll grow to about $40 billion in about 20 or 30 years' time. So it's quite significant. And then we have things like sea level rises, which affects your productive land that's available. And we know that in sectors like agriculture, variations in temperature leads to variations in crop yields and uncertainty and can negatively affect agriculture. And similarly with tourism, you know, if you have snow fields and it doesn't snow, uh, you don't quite have a tourism industry. If you have more 40 degree days, it's actually uncomfortable and unpleasant to go to the beach. So these sectors get affected. So we look at these things that damage the economy. And so our net zero uh, recovery path is to try and limit those damages. Um, it says, let's try and keep to the Paris Agreement of significantly below two degrees increase. And that is what we model. And what we find is that if we achieve that, then in just 50 years, there is, instead of a cost to the economy of 3.4 trillion, there is a dividend to the economy of 680 billion generating 250,000 jobs a year. And that, we think, is a helpful and hopeful contribution to how we start to think about this debate on climate change. Yes, yes, indeed. I mean, the debate in climate change is often uh, uh, put awry by uh, uh, deceptive uh, uh, suggestions that somehow there's, there's only a downside to uh, addressing the problem. I know that Zali Stegel's bill 
uh, is before the Australian Parliament right now and that uh, Morrison has argued that uh, to sign up to this target uh, could have some cost, some unknown cost. Uh, what, how would you typify that kind of rhetoric? Look, there are always costs to change, right? But uh, the impact of the environment, of the climate changing, is not something we can control overnight. And so we have to respond to the things that are already locked into the system and change our behaviour and change the driving forces that are making the environment worse. So to that extent, there are things that we can do. And will there be costs? Yes. But what our report shows is that if we don't do anything, the costs are incredibly high. So doing nothing is now a choice, and that choice is costly. In contrast, doing something about uh, climate change, we think, delivers you a better economy, more growth, and more jobs than the alternative. Sounds like a no-brainer to me. <laughs> Look, it's, uh, you know, part of the reason why we've had a fraught debate is because we haven't had the economics right. Mm. And I think what we've tried to do in this is to reset the economic debate and get the economics right so that we can have a more reasoned debate. Because, yes, there will be some things that will be too costly to do, but at least let's have that against the right baseline for change in Australia. Well, thank you for your hard work and uh, effective contribution to this, uh, this important uh, moment in our history. Thank you, Sean. You know, Australia uh, faces the worst of uh, a warming world and can benefit the most from concerted action. So it's in our collective interest to have the rest of the world change and for us to go along for the ride but be ready for it by taking actions at home. So... Uh, great to be with you on this important topic, Sean. That was Dr. Pradeep Phillip from Deloitte Access Economics. Simon Clough is a former Deputy Mayor of Lismore City Council and a Rouse County Councillor. He is deeply concerned about a litany of flaws and failings in the public consultation and design process for the Rouse County Council's proposal to Dam Danoon. Simon, thank you very much for joining Environmental As Anything today. That's fine, Sean. Thank you. Water Northern Rivers Alliance is calling for an immediate release to the full results of community consultation regarding the future water 2060 plan from Rouse County Council. Why is that? Well, we've been desperately disappointed by Rouse's behaviour in relation to the consultation. They went behind the backs of the community and approached the Minister for Water, Minister Pavey, and basically tried to get the Danoon Dam on the agenda for the state government. They didn't say that there was deep community concern about this dam, as was said, in fact, by Tweed about the Beryl Creek Dam. So we're quite concerned and upset about the situation. Rouse has now had the submissions from the community, over 700 of them, for two months. We haven't heard a word about it. We would like those submissions released as soon as possible so that we can rectify the situation that Rouse has created by not being upfront about the community concerns on the Danoon Dam. 
So you've got documentary evidence of this failure? Yeah, the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment has put out a report called the Northern Rivers Future Water Strategy. And in that, on page 131, they talk about the Dunoon Dam you know, in very favourable terms. And our concern is that no reference at all to the very deep and very valid concerns that the community has about the staff. So you've obviously been Deputy Mayor of Lismore City Council and former uh, Rouse County Councillor. Uh, is this par for the course? Uh, would you have considered that to be normal process in your time, time of tenure? Well, no, uh, not in terms of a process of consultation. Uh, I mean, while this consultation period was on, uh, staff from Rouse were actually uh, going around to the member councils, strongly advocating for the dam. To my mind, this is just a, a complete... Um, it's not consultation, Sean. No, it's, no. Uh, it's quite uh, devious and... Uh, consultation as far as I'm concerned is where the community uh, is genuinely asked for its opinion to comment and it's strongly taken into account by the uh, body concerned, Rouse in this case. So my time with Rouse, there was definitely a sense that the dam was going to be a last resort. Certainly they were looking at groundwater, water efficiency and other options. Since then it seems like the dam has become the absolute major focus and that's a vast concern to us. Because there are all the other options that are uh, actually being canvassed, aren't they? And a lot of them seem a lot less expensive and more effective. Well, yeah. And unfortunately, in their report, they have glossed over a number of elements, such as water efficiency. Now, my understanding is that Rouse actually has only recently appointed a part-time water efficiency person. That position hasn't been vacant for over a year. Now, water efficiency on any scale, for instance, in the all options on the table report, is by far the cheapest way of increasing available water and water security. The other thing that's very clear from that report and is totally lacking in Rouse's work is just how important it is that any water security comes from a variety of sources. Now, when you think about the Danone Dam, it really, there's some very serious issues with climate change, rainfall can be very seriously affected, but also the efficiency of water harvesting because you know, your rainfall events can be like a downpour, you know, cloudburst type situation, makes it very hard to harvest your water. So there needs to be a range of non-rainfall dependent options. That hasn't really even hit the table as far as Rouse is concerned. Mm. So in addition to that, this dam is actually on the same water system, the Rocky Creek, as the existing dam. So we have, talking about putting all the eggs in one basket, you know, it looks pretty crazy. You're, so, robbing, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul effectively for these two dams. Well, yeah, I mean, the existing dam supposedly will uh, overflow to fill the, the new dam. I'm not even aware of how regularly that happens. But in addition to that, the water efficiency is not rainfall dependent as such. You know, it's uh, independent. The whole issue of water recycling hasn't been effectively covered, and I mean certainly not of any scale. The desalination plants, so forth, are using renewable energy. Fantastic option for particularly coast where the development is largely happening, but also the issue of tanks. You know, Warrnambool has done some amazing work where rather than put in tanks, 
they actually looked at harvesting roof water and were able to amalgamate it and put it straight back into the, the whole water system. And it turned out to be a very significant saving of money and, and water. So there are a whole lot of options there that Rouse really hasn't even come to terms with. And uh, that's, what, that's what we would like to see them take up. So you're calling for the community consultation report to be made public well in advance of Rouse County Council's meeting on the 18th of November. Uh, what sure. would you like to see the community doing in support of uh, the, the Water Northern Rivers Alliance right now? Oh, look, I think anything people can do in terms of talking to local members, talking to councillors, really beginning to express their concern about this situation. I mean, not only are there significant issues about the effectiveness of this dam, but also the destruction of 64 hectares of lowland rainforest, some of which is on sandstone, and that's incredibly precious. It's an extraordinary uh, environmental area that they're looking at destroying. That's ridiculous at this time. We just can't afford to do that. It's far too precious. In addition, there are very significant Aboriginal heritage sites, including Aboriginal burial sites. For all those reasons, those alone should be enough for Rouse to say this is not an appropriate site for a huge dam. In addition, of course, there are all those water efficiency and actual effectiveness of the dam issues, as I've mentioned previously. That all sounds really clear and clearly needs to be acted on. So we're basically asking the community to get in touch with their local council, get in touch with Rouse County yep. Council and uh, tell them what they think of these issues. Exactly. Yep. Give them a call and tell them that it's the dam is not on. All right. Thank you so much, Simon, for your time today. No problem, Sean. Thank you. That was former Rouse County Councillor and Lismore City Councillor Simon Clough. Are you looking for the courage to face the hard facts about our environmental crises? Do you want honest reporting on the global solutions that are at our fingertips? Would you like to know what simple, effective local actions you can take to make a positive difference to the state of the world today? Tune in to Environmental as Anything on 92.9 River FM every Saturday from 2 to 5 for all the news, interviews and analysis you need to make the future you want. For the future, we're